Good morning. We begin a new series of study this morning on the first book of Thessalonians. And Lord willing, I would like to at least cover the first chapter of this book, verses 1 to 10. So if you still have your Bibles handy, would you all please turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 to 10. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1 to 10. And uh, this is going to be our main text for this morning. But there is also another passage which I would like for us to turn to. That is Acts 17, 1 to 15. So we have two passages to keep track of this morning, Acts 17, 1 to 15, where we read about the history of this little church's beginning and about the tumultuous events that surrounded its formation and how the unbelieving Jews persecuted Paul and Silas, so much so that the brethren had to secretly whisk Paul and Silas out at night to Berea. Nevertheless, we are told that some of the Jews believed as well as a great number of Greeks, both men and women, who heard Paul's preaching. And thus was founded the church at Thessalonica. The record tells us that Paul and Silas spent three consecutive Sabbaths in Thessalonica, reasoning with them out of the scriptures. Verse 2 and 3 of Acts 17. Opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. After being sent away from Thessalonica to Berea, Paul and Silas made their way to Athens, Greece, and eventually to Corinth, from where he wrote 1 Thessalonians. That puts the time frame at approximately 54 AD. And so as we begin to examine 1 Thessalonians, we will notice a threefold theme or idea running through this epistle. First, there is the reassurance of the young believers in certain fundamental truths. Secondly, the apostle endeavors to encourage them to go on for the Lord by living holy lives. And thirdly, we see the apostle comforting these believers concerning the dead in Christ and the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. First, Let's read our main text for this morning together from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 to 10. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 to 10. Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father. Knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in the power and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God word is spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. And may God the Holy Spirit grant us wisdom to understand this passage before us. But first, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank thee so much for the word of God. And we thank thee for this passage in particular this morning, 1 Thessalonians, which thy servant Paul and Silas and Timothy presented to the church at Thessalonica. Help us to understand it. Help us to believe it and help us to obey it for we ask it always in our Savior's name and for his glory. Amen. As the chapter begins we read in verse 1 that this particular epistle is sent by Paul and Silvanus Silvanus was another name for Silas, which he was known more commonly as Silas, and by Timothy. These three labored amongst the church in Thessalonica and established them in the gospel. Three names which I'm sure would be a blessing to this little flock. All believers fondly look back at those who led them to the Lord and rejoice at the sound of their names. And that is no less the case here. What roles uh, Silas and Timothy and Paul had exactly is not revealed to us. But this we do know, that all three of them labored to establish this little church. And all three of them cared very much for its spiritual well-being. What follows is unique in Paul's address to the Thessalonians. He writes unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Nowhere else in Scripture, except in First and Second Thessalonians, 
does the apostle write this kind of address in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet it seems that in those three Sabbaths at Thessalonica, Paul was able to teach them many foundational truths or doctrines. And this acknowledgement that they were now in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ speaks to them of the eternal security of all believers. Grace and peace can only come from God the Father. Therefore, what better words to greet the saints of God with, especially these young believers who had been freshly plucked out of the fire or out of the flames. What sweetness these words bring to a believer's ears. Were it not for the grace of God, none of us would be sitting here this morning rejoicing in our Savior and enjoying his peace. But I believe the Apostle Paul, when he greets them with these two words, grace and peace, has another idea in mind. It is not the grace that saved them, but rather the grace that God gives to each of us through our daily lives. Similarly, it is not the peace with God that all believers have upon believing, but rather the peace of God that the apostle is referring to. It is the peace of God that is necessary and precious to the believer in times of peril, in times of affliction, persecution, and suffering. And so he writes, Grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 1. Then the apostle, who was a man of constant prayer, reveals his prayer for this flock. Prayer, as we know, is what yields results. Prayer is what God expects of all of his people, because through prayer God is able to pour out his blessings upon those whom he has redeemed. And through prayer, his will may be revealed to his people. Prayer is also the only avenue through which we may access the throne of grace and speak freely with our Heavenly Father as we pour out all of our griefs, all of our burdens, as well as all of our joys. In verses 2 and 3, we see the Apostle's prayer was first and foremost one of thanksgiving. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. And the first thing for which he gives thanks is for the local body of believers themselves as a whole. He gives thanks for them all. And I'm sure that when the Apostle Paul gave thanks for them, he prayed for them individually. He named them one by one as he knew them and their needs. 
This kind of praying brought the apostle closer to them so that his love for them abounded more and more. But notice he writes, we give thanks to God always for you all. The apostle Paul was not alone in praying for this flock. There were others who joined him in his praying. And who was more suitable to join the apostle in prayer for this church than these two fellow sufferers or co-laborers, Silas and Timothy? Silas, his old friend, who endured many a hardship with Paul in prison, and Timothy, the young evangelist who would later carry on the work of the Lord when Paul would be called home. Three godly servants, each poured out for the cause of Christ. And what do the scriptures say about fervent prayers? In James 5, 6, we read, Confess your faults one to another, and pray one for another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And the second thing for which the apostle gave thanks in his prayer for this church was for their work of faith. Their faith was well known. It was a working faith. It was a faith that touched people's lives. It was a faith that was alive. James writes in the epistle of James 2, verses 14 to 20, the following. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man may say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto him, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye gave them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God. Thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But with, wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Yes, theirs was a faith that worked. Thirdly, Paul gave thanks for their labor of love. Faith which brings good works but is not glued together by love, godly love, is cold indeed and will probably not do much in the way of winning souls. Godly love will labor under very adverse conditions. Godly love is what provides the necessary ingredient to perseverance. Love is that fruit which will outlast all others, including faith and hope. Love is what, after all, in the end, draws the sinner to the Savior and binds him to the Master for all eternity. For we read in Romans eight thirty-five to 39 Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? 
as it is written, for thy sake. We are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yes, love is that quality, that fruit of the Holy Spirit for which the Master looked most often, and still does today in his disciples, because it, love, best demonstrates to the lost the whole motivating force behind our God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Yes, these Christians at Thessalonica, this little church that was established there after so much turmoil and contention and persecution was well known for its labors of love. And news of their good works reached Paul, and he gave God thanks for them. But there was a fourth thing also. He remembered daily in his prayers their patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul knew only too well the persecutions which these new believers went through, the hardships and the afflictions. Yet through them all they remained patient, ever hoping in the Lord's soon return. Is it any wonder that this hope is called our blessed hope? For where would believers be without it? Where would our courage be if we had no hope of his return in the midst of terrible persecution and tribulation? Where would we be as believers if we had no hope in his sovereign will or a plan for each of us? What does the Bible say about the believer's hope? It is always in connection with the Lord Jesus, because he is our hope. Hebrews six eighteen to 19 says that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. And then in 1 John 3, verses 2 to 3, we read further about the hope that believers have. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Then in Romans 5, 3-5, 
And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. And finally, in Romans 8, verses 24 to 25, For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Yes, Paul was delighted by their hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, as displayed by their patience for waiting for him while enduring many hardships in the meantime. For these four things, the saints, their work of faith, their labor of love, and their patience of hope, Paul always gave thanks to God in his prayers. That is why Paul could say with reasonable certainty in verse 4 concerning this church's spiritual state, Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God, it was by their fruit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit manifested in them, that he could call them the elect of God. Because they received Christ, they were now the elect of God. Often there is much confusion in the church about election and the elect. Personal election never precedes personal salvation, but vice versa. That is, when a soul of his or her own free will receives Christ as Savior, he or she then becomes part of Christ's chosenness and becomes one of his elect because they are now in Christ. Nowhere in Scripture are we taught that God chooses anyone to be saved or anyone to be lost. But because of his omniscience, that is, because of his ability to see the future, the end from the beginning, God knows who will receive Christ freely someday and who will reject Christ. We see this principle throughout all of Scripture. Israel was God's elect in the Old Testament, but all of the Israelites whom God delivered out of Egypt, perished in the desert because of unbelief, except for Caleb and Joshua and the young children. Yet Israel was God's elect. In the New <coughs> Testament, we must differentiate between the earthly elect, which is Israel, and the heavenly elect, which is the church. I'm going to repeat that. The church is the heavenly elect, while Israel is the earthly elect. And many false teachers will interchange these and apply the blessings of Israel to the blessings of the church. 
That is why we need to be very careful to rightly divide the word of truth. Our destiny is in heaven, while Israel is looking for the earthly kingdom, which will be restored to them in a coming day. Two elects, because they have been chosen by God before the foundation of the world to different purposes and roles, but never to individual salvation. In 2 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul later writes again to this same church to remind them that we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth. Notice where the period is not. It does not stop at salvation. But God says, Paul, chose to save you how? Through the sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth. Anyone who does not believe in Christ as Savior or the substitutionary blood work of Calvary cannot be saved because God chose before the foundation of the world only one way of salvation for all mankind. Are you this morning in Christ? Are you saved because you have trusted what Jesus did for your sins on the cross of Calvary? If you have, then you are one of his elect his heavenly elect. Then in verse 5, we get some insight into how the gospel was given. It came not only verbally from the lips of Paul in the form of his voice for all to hear, but it also came in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. It came, so to speak, as though God himself were speaking it to them that day. And they believed God. They were assured in their hearts that what Paul was saying was the truth. God gave them that assurance that day, and they believed. In the next verse, we see how the gospel was received. They became believers and sent synonymously followers of the Lord, but they had to pay a big price for their new faith, which they received amidst great personal affliction and persecution, but also with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And because of that, God was able to use them as living examples to every believer in Macedonia. These Thessalonians were so in tune with God and so yielded to the Holy Spirit that they became a model church to all Christians everywhere, both in Macedonia and in Greece. There was such a strong testimony in this church that it spread out from Thessalonica 
throughout Macedonia and through Greece and was still spreading at the time of this writing. We read further on in verses 9 and 10 about what made them such a vibrant testimony for the Lord. Their conversion was real. Therefore, their testimony was real. Sometimes there is a danger for people to become emotionally inspired and to be intellectually or emotionally converted only. And of course, for a while there seems to be fruit, but it is not permanent fruit. It is not good fruit. It is not fruit produced by the Holy Spirit, but it is produced instead by the flesh. But in this case, Paul would know their election, as he says in verse 4, because he knew the fruit to be genuine fruit. You see, Paul recognized the fruit to be the same type as was produced in his own life by the Spirit of God. We are told that they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. They gave up. They threw away. They cast out, so to speak, their idolatry, the false worship of many gods. Now, we must remember that a good number of the church here at Thessalonica were Greeks who had been steeped in idol worship. Greeks were notorious for idolatry. They built statues everywhere and had a god for everything. There were temples everywhere for these false gods. It was ingrained into them since their early childhood. It was their culture. It was their way of life to just suddenly turn away from this kind of idolatry required a miracle a miracle from the true living God. Thus, the first two commandments were now fulfilled in these lovely new Christians to Paul's delight. Exodus 23 to 5 reads, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the Father upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. By turning away from these idols, these new Christians found life to be very hard now, very lonely in many cases because they now were separated from much of society. They lost their friends, maybe their families, and most likely even their jobs. They could no longer, for instance, continue working for a statue company as new believers. What a message to us this morning. This is real conversion. When the Lord saves his people from their sins, they turn away from their sinful practices. Their former gods suddenly start to disappear one by one. They 
then only have one God, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is, however, a sad refrain to all of this today. We see little of the old practices today amongst the Lord's people. There is very little separation from idols or false gods today in the church. So many of the Lord's people naively are steeped in idolatry, not realizing the effect it has on their testimony and their Lord, who is a jealous God. There are many new gods today. This is the new God of sports. Now, there's nothing wrong with indulging in sports for recreational purposes. But when it consumes the believer to the point that it takes away from his or her time with the Lord or the Lord's people or from the Lord's day, then it becomes a new God. It is a bad message to send to our children when organized sports take priority over a Sunday worship meeting. Then there is the God of entertainment which consumes our thoughts, spends our time and steals our money. In moderation, entertainment can be healthy and culturally profitable. But how many Christians are really able to draw the line? There is also the cruel God of work and promotion and climbing up the social ladder, bringing with it an undying consumption for material things and luxury. Again, in moderation, these things are healthy. But as usually becomes the case, these two eventually seem to get out of hand and become modern gods, zapping us of our strength and time which we should be giving to the Savior. For us to turn away from these gods would take a miracle. And what a testimony we too could experience. Finally, we come to the 10th verse. I would like for us to notice that this little church in the short time that Paul had been with them, maybe three to four weeks in Thessalonica, he managed to teach them even the doctrine of the Lord's return. Verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. They were waiting for the Lord's return. They were expecting him to come for the church to save them from the wrath to come. Which wrath is that? That's the tribulation years. They had been taught about the tribulation, God's wrath to fall. They knew that the church would be raptured and spared. They knew about the Antichrist and the Lord's return in glory, as we'll read about that later on in the next epistle. An amazing little body of believers. This constant thought of the Lord's return kept them pure and kept them holy. I remember personally when I also first believed, my thoughts were constantly on the Lord's imminent return. I was saved in 1981 and I expected him back by 1982. When he didn't come, I was sure he would come in 1983. And everything I ventured into, I considered carefully whether I 
would be wise in doing this or doing that because the Lord might come and the work might be of little profit to me. I became more selective of the type of projects I began, and I still do today. It is very hard to get me involved in just any project, even if it is for a good cause. And how wonderful are the early years of a new believer's life. The joy of the Lord is our strength. But as he tarries, there is always the danger of falling away, isn't there? Always the danger of becoming complacent. Always the danger of being wooed back to the things of the world, especially in an affluent society such as ours. But this was a model church in a hostile environment. They flourished amidst the afflictions and persecutions, and they were examples to all believers in Macedonia and Greece. They were examples because the Holy Spirit of God was able, as they yielded themselves to him, to work in their lives and to produce a faith that worked, a love that labored, and a hope that was patient as they waited for the Lord's return. Lord willing, I would like to continue with chapter 2 at some future date, and I trust that we might find it a blessing to us as well. But as always, before I step down from this platform, I must ask you this. Are you a Christian this morning? Are you truly born again of the Spirit of God and have had all of your sins forgiven because of what Christ did for you? And are you daily trusting in him? Or are you a Christian in name only? The Apostle Paul pleads with the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 13.5, Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Make sure, he is saying, that you were genuinely converted by the Spirit of God, that you were really born again and not simply carried away by good theology, that you truly believe in your heart that Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, came to this earth and became fully man, perfect man, so that he could become the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Be sure that his blood has cleansed you from all your sins and that you are now in him, saved to serve him. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank thee so much for this epistle to the Thessalonians. And Father, we marvel at their example and how committed they were and how much they gave up. They gave up everything for Christ. And it causes us to be embarrassed and shamed as to how little we give out and give up for our Savior. Help us, Lord, to realign ourselves with the teaching of Scripture. Help us, Lord, to be more committed to him day by day and to give all that we have to him 
including our hearts. We pray that thou would part us with thy blessing this morning. Keep us from harm's way, if possible, Lord, if that be thy will. And if the Lord be not come, may it please thee immensely to bring us together again next Lord's Day around his table so that we might meet with our Savior as we ask it in his name and for his glory. Amen. Thank you.